She was this gun-toting, whiskey-drinking broad. The super epic fucking broad. She was a pioneer in the industry. She's also so famous and so controversial. So controversial. So she's kind of a big fucking deal. Her story is so incredible. She belongs on this podcast because she's a broad you should know. Hello and welcome to Broads You Should Know, the podcast about amazing and noteworthy women from history. I'm your host, Sarah Gorski, and we just finished wrapping up a fabulous Pride Month wherein Chloe and I not only covered some incredible trans broads, but we also spent some time talking about all of the insidious anti-trans legislation and rhetoric that have been seeping into the media and state legislation and even apparently the Supreme Court. Um, If any of you missed any of June on this pod, please do yourself and all of your LGBTQ friends and family a favor and give those episodes a listen. I think you'll find the history of those broads and the conversations with Chloe very enlightening. But alas, Pride Month is over for now and I am bringing you an entirely new broad today and an Australian broad nonetheless. We really have not covered any Australian broads thus far on the history of this podcast, which is a huge oversight on my part, obviously. The closest broad we've had so far was Chloe's episode on Jacinda Ardern, the PM of New Zealand. But New Zealand is not Australia, and so it's about fucking time we covered that part of the world. And let me just tell you... Whoa. Um... You know, when we've covered multiple broads from the same region, as a novice researcher and pseudo-historian myself, I start to clearly more understand the overarching histories of specific regions. And when I research a new broad from the same time and region a different broad was from, I've got like a foundation historically for the time and place and political atmosphere she's born into. But in the case of Australia, I didn't really have any sort of foundation of knowledge other than knowing that it was one of the major British colonies and that a lot of criminals were sent there from from Britain, Great Britain. Um, And I'm guessing, my listeners, that this all might be true for you as well. So get ready to dive into a whole new time and place, but with the same familiar colonizer bullshit we have seen in some of our other stories. Um, Our broad today is Molly Craig. We are in Australia in 1931. Molly Craig was born in Jigalong, Western Australia, either in 1916 or 1917. So she's 14 or 15 when this big event takes place in 1931. Her mother, Maud, was an Aboriginal woman of the Martu people, or the Mardujara. Uh, I'm sure that I butchered that. My apologies um, to Aboriginal folks out there. Um, Generally speaking, the Martu are a combination of many different peoples, all of whom were residents of the Sandy Desert, this big desert in the northwest of 
the country. And when the colonizers came into the region and forged the Canning Stock Route in 1906, a giant trade route, um, many Martu people were forced to serve as guides and show everybody their water resources. Um, and they were kind of run down by men on horseback with guns and restrained with chains and tied to trees at night. And, the, and as the colonizers began establishing settlements, the Martu were taken from the desert, their homeland, to these settlements that they, the colonizers began to, to build. Um, and missionaries and officials there would stop them from foraging, or at least encourage them not to forage for food, um, and kind of made them reliant on market goods that were imported, like flour and sugar. Um, jig along where... Mali was born was one such settlement. Uh, though despite, according to the, the sources I was reading, despite the market influences, uh, supposedly Jigalong also became kind of a centering point for the Martu, bringing together some previously disparate tribes all from the desert kind of together as one people, and they kind of gelled as the Martu in this region. Um, what is also happening at this time is that the colonizers were building this giant rabbit-proof fence spanning the entire continent north to south. Uh, and a branch of it also divided the west part horizontally, um, north and south. So they had these kind of segments um, in the west part of the country. And it may have been built before Molly's. I actually didn't get the building date of the fence, but it existed when Molly was alive. Um, and this fence was designed to prevent animals from crossing from East Australia into the Western lands, which were primarily being used as farmlands, right? Um, of course, giant building projects and maintenance projects like that require a lot of manpower. So the colonizers established Jigalong as a, an outpost where the men building and maintaining the fence would get their rations and stuff. And then the, the local tribes, you know, once they were made dependent on those, those materials. Well, as it so often happens in colonizer situations like this, the men sent to work and maintain the fence become friendly with the indigenous women. And naturally, these relations produce beautiful mixed race babies. Um, the Brits at the time lovingly refer to these babies as half castes. And guess what? That's right. Molly's father is named Thomas Craig, and he was a white Australian fence inspector. Uh, that is the only information I have about him. He does not um, appear to have stayed in his kid's life. Maybe he didn't even know they were alive. I have no idea. Um, I think this is a good moment to talk a little more about what is happening in Australia at the time Molly was born into it. Um, I do also want to give a content warning before I dig in because this information um, is going to hurt your heart or, well, at least it was painful for me to learn. And if you listen to this podcast too, I think it might be rough for you too. Um, so be prepared for that. Uh, yeah. So when the colonizers settled in Australia and began pushing the Aboriginal tribes around, much like 
in North America and everywhere else that white people went, the indigenous tribes suffered great losses in population. Um, a combination of the violence against them, of course, as well as disease, uh, uh, you know, took large numbers of indigenous people's lives. And at some point, these boneheaded colonizers wrote up some kind of narrative that the aboriginal tribes were in danger of extinction and that they needed to be saved because they could not save themselves. Never mind that they'd been living on the land by themselves for centuries before white people arrived. (sighs) So uh, a number of legislative actions were passed towards this goal of preserving the indigenous life. Um, And there were a lot of different actions that were going on at the time, but the big one that appears to me to kind of kick off this kind of segment of history we're getting into is the Aboriginal Protection Act of 1869, which, amongst many things, authorized the state to remove children from Aboriginal parents. In particular, half-caste children like Molly were removed from their mothers and their homes and shipped to boarding school type camps where they were forbidden to speak in their native language or practice any native traditions and they were trained to be domestic servants uh, and farm workers if they were boys and then they were fostered out to white families to serve. So basically, forced slavery. Uh, Each Australian state appointed an, quote, Aboriginal protector, this was an official government position, who in effect became the legal guardian of these removed children, basically controlling where they go, where they lived, where they worked, who they could marry and not marry, their whole life was basically controlled by these Aboriginal protectors. Um, And the legislation continued to expand after this first Aboriginal Protection Act. Under the Northern Territory Aboriginals Act of 1910, the chief protector of Aborigines was appointed the, quote, legal guardian of every Aboriginal and every half-caste child up to the age of 18 years, end quote. And then, under the Aboriginals Ordinance of 1918, the chief protector was given total control of all indigenous women, regardless of their age, unless they were married to a man who was, quote, substantially of European origin. And this approval, uh, and the, the protector's approval was required for any marriage of an indigenous woman to a non-indigenous man. But let's not fool ourselves. And maybe you already guessed this based on that very last disgusting fact that all this legislation wasn't just like aboriginals need protection narrative that drove all these actions and legislations. There were way more sinister and flat out racist powers at play in all these happenings. So we're going to enter the real life villain of this part of history, a man by the name of Mr. A.O. Neville. His full name was Auber Octavius Neville, but the history books call him A.O. Uh, so we'll just say A.O. is appointed the chief protector of the Aborigines for Western Australia in 1915. What qualified for A.O. AO for this position? Nothing that I could find in my research. 
His previous posts before that appointment included running immigration and tourism and uh, secretary of the War Patriotic Fund. But here he is, appointed guardian of the Aboriginal children. Um, now, Mr. A.O. was a big believer in, in a popular concept at the time, which was, quote, breeding out the color, which was the belief that by breeding mixed-race children with white people, in three generations, you would completely eliminate all signs of their Aboriginal heritage. This absolute douchebag, Dr. Cecil Cook, who was one of the Northern Territory chief protectors of Aborigines at the time, argued that, quote, everything necessary must be done to convert the half-caste into a white citizen, end quote. And these dudes, they had a whole labeling system. Not unlike we did in the U.S., I should add. Like, they're, they're not the only people who did this. Um, these children were called, quote, half-castes, crossbreeds, quadroons, and octoroons, depending on how much Aboriginal blood they had. Um, and there's also this visual chart that A.O. Neville used that shows the progression of skin color and facial features as you follow the, quote, breeding pattern across three generations. It's super gross. I'm going to post it on the website for reference. Um, that is gross. So A.O. Neville believed that this biological absorption was the key to, quote, uplifting the native race. End quote. And he was quoted also as saying, quote, are we going to have one million blacks in the Commonwealth or are we going to merge them into our white community and eventually forget that there were any Aborigines in Australia? End quote. He sounds like a really great guy. Um, so back to Molly. That's the history. Let's get back to Molly and her story. So we are here in 1931, and Molly is 14 or 15, and she's living with her mom and sister and aunts and cousin and the rest of her people in Jigalong, which is, again, north of the Sandy Desert, uh, and not far from that rabbit-proof fence. And the fucking British-Australian dickheads wade into Jigalong, and they swoop up Molly and her sister Daisy, who was eight years old, and her cousin Gracie, who was 11 years old. And they just kidnap these girls. And they take them, they transport them to the Moor River Native Settlement, just north of Perth. That's over 1,600 kilometers, or 990 miles, almost 1,000 miles. Um, it was a long, it's like not... A quick or easy journey. It was like train and car and boat. It's like an ordeal to get these kids there. And yet they still did this shit all the time. And the Moore River Native Settlement was, as I'm sure you've guessed, similar to internment camps. And the native schools that have recently made the news across North America for the sheer number of unmarked graves of native children that died there. Uh... Wikipedia has a stat that in 1933, the Aboriginal population at the institution, the institution being the Moore River Native Settlement, had risen to over 500 with increasingly squalid conditions. And between 1918 and 1952, 346 deaths were recorded at Moore River Native Settlement. 
42% of which were children between the ages of one to five. And while we're talking about stats here, I found another stat in my research from an official report interviewing 502 Aboriginal witnesses. And from that total 17% of female witnesses and 7.7% of male witnesses reported to having suffered a sexual assault while in the institution at work or while living with a foster or adoptive family. So much for protecting the aboriginals these places were fucking death traps and so kids ran away all the time from moore river i mean wouldn't wouldn't you i would run away from that fucking shit but the people in charge there also would hire aboriginal trackers to hunt the kids down and then punish them when they ran away and when they were when they were caught but here's 14 year old molly and her sister and her cousin now here at moore river and they're, they arrive and they are scrubbed down and fed and put into a bed uh, in this big room that like they don't even have proper sheets and shit. They're like laying on mattresses with like one blanket and they uh, wake up the next day and all the while being yelled at, you know, they can't use their native language. They can't talk. They can't do any of that. Molly is not having it. And literally the day after they arrive at Moore River, Molly gathers Daisy and Gracie and they make a run for it. Now, Molly is smart as hell. She's 14. She's not as young as the other ones. And she knows that the rabbit proof fence is east of them where they are at in Moore River. And that that fence runs all the way from where they're at south by Perth all the way up north past Jigalong. So she is somehow able to navigate all three of them east and they find the fence and they follow it north. And in their journey, these three girls, they, they cross a flooded river and sand dunes and heathlands and wheat belt and Malay country, which is a lot of eucalyptus plants there. Um, the Gibber Plains, which is basically uh, uh, not the, it's Gibber Plains is a type of topsoil, which is basically like desert cobblestones. That must be comfortable on the feet. Um, all these heaps of red dust and mulga country and spinifex country and clay pen and salt. Like these are all regions uh, that Australians no, but we don't because we're here in the U.S. Or I'm here in the U.S. Um, and the girls, they slept in dugout rabbit burrows. And they caught and cooked rabbits. And they ate bibijali, which is a kind of sweet potato. And karkula, which is a kind of wild banana. And the whole time, they're evading those trackers that were sent behind them. And when the younger girls get tired, Molly carries them on her back, piggyback style. And these girls walk for nine weeks. Um, I should say, I think they do get, sep Gracie gets separated from them, but they walk nine weeks and, and travel 1,600 kilometers, 900 miles, all the way back to Jigalong. And to this day, Molly's walk ranks as one of the most remarkable feats of endurance, cleverness, and courage in Australian history.
Holy fucking shit, right? This 14-year-old girl. Um, I wish that I could tell you that was the end of Molly's troubles, but listeners, it was not. Um, yes, Molly and Daisy were reunited with their mom and grandma. Um, Gracie had, like I said, got separated from them. I don't, I didn't get the details on that because I didn't read the original, um, biography itself. But, um, Molly and Daisy, mom and grandma, they all retreat from the more populated jigalong and they continuously kind of elude authorities. And eventually, Molly meets and marries a man named Toby Kelly, who was an Aboriginal stockman. And the couple work together on Balfour Downs Station. Um, and she gives birth to her first daughter, Nubi Garamara, uh, also known as Doris, in 1936, under a Wintamara tree, it said. Then in 1937, her second daughter, Annabelle, is born. But then, in 1940, those British-Australian government forces are somehow able to nab Molly and her daughters again. And once more, they transport them all the way down to Moore River, which at that point had expanded from just a boarding school for kids to a full fucking internment camp, adults and all. And again... A little bit. She's she's there about a year. And then in 1941, Molly makes a run for it again. This time, she's carrying 18-month-old Annabelle in her arms. as She had to leave Doris, who was four years old with a relative. And she walks the same route home once again, this time with a baby. Um, her pseudo-freedom is short-lived, though, because in 1943, the fucking British-Australian authorities take Annabelle, too, who later was told that she was an orphan. And Annabelle would never see her mother again. Although apparently they were able to exchange gifts before Molly passed, but they were not reunited in person again. Doris, however, was reunited with her mother 21 years later. And she ends up writing a trilogy of books about her mother's journey, one of which uh, is called Rabbit Proof Fence, which was also made into a feature film in 2002. And I watched it! I don't always have time to like watch all these things about our broads. And I bought this one. I knew I wanted to watch it. Um, I got it on Apple TV. And of course, it was riveting. And A.O. Neville is played by Kenneth Branagh, who's like this perfect villain. Um, It's hard to tell what, if anything, is incorrect or inaccurate. I would guess that pretty much all the scenes of Neville are largely fictionalized. But the film is based on Doris's first book, which is based on all that her mother told her about these events. Um, And Molly was still alive when they shot the film. She was actually there with them on set on the making of the film. And apparently she kept, um, apparently she kept asking the crew if anyone had seen her stolen daughter. And then in, in 2004, Molly Craig, at the age of 84, laid down for an afternoon nap and she passed in her sleep, having never again seen Annabelle, her stolen baby. Um, Doris spoke of her mother thus. Mum's legacy is the calming influence and quiet dignity of the desert women and the stolen generation's story. She looked you straight in the eye. The Australian government continued to take Aboriginal children from their mothers until, I can't even believe I have to say this, this practice continued until the 1970s. It is estimated 
that between 1 in 10 and 1 in 3 children, or in real numbers, between 20,000 and 25,000 Aboriginal children were forcibly taken from their families and communities between 1910 and 1970. And all of these Aboriginal children, including Molly, Daisy, Gracie, Doris, and Annabelle, are now widely known as the Stolen Generations. Uh, And if you want to read more about any and all of this, as always, I encourage you to do further reading. There's so much reading. I skimmed over um, a lot of the logistical things and, and some of the history parts just to get what you needed for this story, but I had no idea. Oh, man, I get emotional when I'm doing stories like this. Um, because I just can't even imagine what those mothers and those children went through and why any government felt they had the authority to, to do that, to rip these families apart and, and try to breed them, to breed the indigenous, the blackness out of them. It's, um, it's horrific. And, um, that's why I try to give you a content warning. Um, but that, my friends, um, is the story of Molly Craig, who walked 1,600 kilometers twice to get back home from whence she was stolen. To learn more about Molly Craig, see pictures of her and some of the other documentation we talked about on this episode, head on over to broadsyoushouldknow.com. While you're there, click on over to the About page to learn more about me. My bio, photo, links to my other stuff, all is right there. Are you following Broads You Should Know on social? We are on Facebook and Instagram at Broads You Should Know and Twitter at BYSK Podcast. To suggest a broad for future episodes, fill out the form on our website or email us at broadsyoushouldknow at gmail.com. Are you a fan of this podcast? If so, please, I ask you, help spread the word about us. Share this or your favorite episode with friends and family, or leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That actually really does help new listeners to find us. It bumps the algorithm, y'all. Broads You Should Know is produced by me, Sarah Gorski, and edited by Chloe Skye, with original music by Darren Callahan. Finally, if you were really drawn in to this story about Molly Craig, then I highly recommend you check out some of our other indigenous broads we've covered on this podcast. We have Tuiria Kayapo, Saka Gawea, Pine Leaf Woman Chief, Liliwo Kulani, and Queen Kuaumanu from Hawaii, and Susan Harjo. See you next week for another Broad You Should Know.